Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. It's Friday, November 6th, and in the words of the late Congressman Mo Udall, the people have spoken, damn it. But in this election, it seems the people won't shut up. Election night leads for President Trump, particularly in Georgia and Pennsylvania, have been steadily eroded as election officials count unprecedented numbers of mail and absentee ballots. The president cries foul and fraud, while his opponent, former Vice President Biden, urges the count onward. But a long and protracted vote count is about the only thing that went according to predictions on election day. The blue wave of outright repudiation that many expected and many pollsters forecast did not materialize. Incumbent Republican senators were defeated in Colorado and Arizona, but there the wave crested. Republicans held their seats in Iowa, Montana, and Maine. Despite the hundreds of millions of dollars raised and spent against them, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham won their races by double digits. It looks like Tom Tillis will hold his lead in North Carolina, but that still means Democrats have an outside shot at getting 50 Senate seats with two Georgia runoffs coming on January 5th. But the shocker of this election has to be what happened in House elections. Forecasts of Democrats expanding their majority by a dozen or more seats were completely contravened, and it looks now like Republicans may have actually flipped nearly a dozen seats in their favor. Not quite enough to retake the House, but narrowing Speaker Pelosi's working majority in the next Congress. And not for nothing, there's still an ongoing pandemic. The three windows I'm watching develop, a lame duck session of the current Congress, the first 100 days of the next administration, and the next Congress through the midterm elections in 2022. Each of these windows have their own politics, their own process, and their own policies to work through. Way too much to keep up with all by myself, which is why I'm so glad to be joined by two of my colleagues here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas, to break down what remains of 2020. We're going to do it in 20 minutes. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Dean, your introduction has caused me to start drinking at 9 a.m. First time. <laughs> well, put that Bloody Mary down for the next 17 minutes. First things first. David, Joe Biden appears to be on offense in the ballot counting in the key remaining states of Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Where do things stand here on Friday morning in the fight for White House control? So I think I'll answer that, Dean, uh, by a, an amusing tweet that I saw this morning where uh, somebody had posted, my uh, three-year-old keeps asking me, when are we going to stop watching the map show? Uh, and, uh, I, think, I think today's the day we get to move on from the uh, map show. Uh, it, it, it appears uh, at this point overnight, uh, the, the vice president has gone ahead in both Pennsylvania and Georgia. He remains ahead in Arizona and Nevada. I think it's just a matter of time before this thing draws to a close. We saw that sort of changing message, the, the tone from the vice president when he's spoken out the past few days of uh, let's wait, let's count the votes, try to remain calm. So I suspect today we'll, we'll see that final announcement. He will officially become president-elect Biden uh, before the sun sets. One thing that's notable about that, DT, is what sure looks like the final map in the Electoral College will be 306 Electoral College votes for Joe Biden, 232 Electoral College votes for Donald Trump, the exact same margin that Trump beat Clinton by in 2016. So should Joe Biden then stand up and say this has been the greatest victory in the history of our country, which is, I think, what uh, Donald Trump said four years ago? As they say, there's a tweet for everything. 
Well, Bruce, to quote General Turgeson from Dr. Strangelove, I hate to make a judgment before all the facts are in, uh, but the polling of the presidential and Senate races uh, sure seems to have created some unrealistic expectations for Democrats. And certainly the district level polling missed dozens of House races where Republicans held seats and Democrats lost seats. Is polling broken? Yes. <laughs> polling would, you, would you care to expand? <laughs> polling is absolutely clearly broken. We knew in 2016 they had two problems. First, there was an unusually large number of people who broke late. So, you know, you're polling through the year for people who are actually undecided, may not get it right, and they all broke pretty hard last time. Far fewer were undecided at the last minute here. And second, prior to, 20, after, prior to the post-2016, in 2016, they didn't separate white voters based upon education. And there is a meaningful difference in the political leanings of white voters with a college degree as compared to white voters without college degrees. So they added those two things in. They fixed it. It's all right. And this time it feels like it was even more of an epic fail than last time. I'll tell you how bad it is, Dean. As we've been working to put our analysis, which hopefully comes out Monday together, I went and looked at the exit polls by AP vote cast, 140,000 interviews. And I also noticed there are because the competing group of exit polls by Edison, which is New York Times and CNN, and that's like 25,000 interviews. According to the Edison data, women, white women with a college degree went for Trump net plus one. According to the AP VoteCast exit interviews or, you know, exit polling, uh, the white women with a college degree went for Biden plus 20. So it's not even the wow. sample size. Now, one of the things in my mind is Edison, the CNN, New York Times data is so clearly obviously wrong because a Trump plus one for white women with a college degree is inconsistent with every other poll ever, everywhere, probably even Trafalgar. Without a doubt, there is something going on. Maybe people aren't being honest with pollsters. Maybe their modeling of the electorate is inaccurate, though it seems less likely so because everybody knew this was going to be high turnout, so they all modeled high turnout. We knew who the Trump base was, so we expected they were going to show something's broken in polling. DT, it just seems if this race had been characterized as the close state-by-state -state battle uh, for White House control that it actually was, uh, Democrats would be dancing in the streets having ousted uh, an incumbent president, which is no small feat in American politics. Yeah, that's right, uh, Dean. I think it's uh, Democrats are, seem to be particularly good at screwing up the expectations game here, because I think if you had uh, a month ago, if we had had a discussion that Trump would be uh, thrown from office and the House would remain in Democratic hands and we pick up some Senate seats, people would have said that's a pretty good night. Instead, we find ourselves really uh, sort of focused on the uh, glass half empty aspects of what happened on Tuesday here, particularly in the House of Representatives. Last uh, night, there was the first uh, conference call that Speaker Pelosi had with her entire Democratic caucus. The most amusing thing, I think, was the amount of live uh, tweeting that reporters were doing from people leaking out what was being discussed in the meeting. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Jake Sherman really has his, has his eyes and ears open in that uh, closed door room. But I think what, what comes out of this here is, is a couple of things. Number one is, unlike past years, I think Speaker Pelosi is fine. There's not going to be a challenge to her uh, leadership. And, and that means that the same team of leaders that have been in place for uh, quite a long time will stay in place. I think so that's there. But the real uh, fight between the moderates and the progressives in the, in the House Democratic Caucus that you see reflected really in the Democratic Party at large, 
That has been supercharged here. Congresswoman Spanberger of Virginia, who barely hung on to win, uh, spoke very passionately and eloquently last night about the challenges she had in her race for being associated with both socialism and defunding the police. Uh, in that meeting, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, spoke up, who's a, you know, uh, famously a member of the squad, spoke up in defense of, the, of her positions and of representing her constituents here. There weren't any answers here. Both sides think that they're moving in uh, uh, the right direction here. So that's going to be a real challenge to Speaker Pelosi as she moves into governing mode in 2021. Well, while these remaining uh, undecided races get sorted, Congress is coming back to town next week to start the lame duck session. Uh, Leader McConnell has signaled a desire to get a COVID support package done by the end of the year. Uh, Government funding, defense authorization, both remain in limbo. What do you guys think Congress can get done in the next two months before a new Congress is sworn in? I'm happy to start. I believe they will pass a COVID package significantly smaller than uh, where Speaker Pelosi had hoped to go. Uh, But Senator McConnell uh, turned on a dime and the day after the election said he's in for a package, which he would say he's always been in for a package, just not one of multiple trillions. But I think Speaker Pelosi recognizes the the economic and social need and she'll want to support that. They're going to pass the National Defense Authorization Act and they're going to fund government to avoid a shutdown in mid-December. Congress will do the things they have to do. There may be some uh, more effort in the administration as, uh, as their tenure ends to try to finish some regulations, maybe put out some more executive orders, and otherwise, as every administration does in its waning days, finishing things that they've started. I'll just add on top of that, Bruce, I think the biggest challenge uh, for this lame duck session is uh, how does President Trump uh, sort of react as somebody who'll be leaving office here? You know, to get anything done in Washington, it takes three to tango, the House, the Senate, and uh, the presidency here. Senator McConnell has clearly stated his interest to try to get some of this stuff done. Will President Trump come to the table? I think that remains uh, to be seen and could be the biggest challenge we're going to see in the next two months. Well, David, let's let's continue with the assumption of what looks most likely a Biden administration and Majority Leader uh, McConnell. Democrats are going to have to trim their sales policy-wise uh, in in the new year. The Democratic leader Chuck Schumer will be up for re-election himself, maybe sweating his own primary challenge from the left. What does all this mean for a Biden administration first 100 days in in that universe? Well, the first thing it means is we can put away all those fantastic memos that we did on reconciliation and filibuster reform, Uh, that that's not going to happen now uh, in the Senate here. Uh, It was a split decision. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Everybody's uh, goals on the Democratic side for what would happen is going to have to be scaled back because Mitch McConnell is now the gatekeeper for what will make it to the resolute desk. So, uh, you know, for a lot of Democrats, that really does give you a lot of heartburn here because Senator McConnell has has really been very good in using the Senate rules in his favor to uh, get his way. Now, I'll, I'll look on the positive side here. Vice President Biden and Senator McConnell have known each other for a very long time. Biden came to the Senate in 72. McConnell came in 1984. That means before uh, Joe Biden became vice president, they served together for 22 years in the Senate. These are guys who know each other well. Senator McConnell was the only Republican senator who, had, uh, who went to uh, Bo Biden's funeral. I think that says a lot. And during the time as uh, vice president here, when the deals needed to be cut on things like the fiscal cliffs and, and avoiding government shutdowns, President Obama would send Joe Biden up to the Senate to get the deal right. done. So they know how to work with each other. 
Um, so I, I actually do believe there will be things that can get done. There will be deadlines that will drive action uh, that, to get things through the Senate here. And at the end of the day, these two old bulls who've known each other for almost 40 years will have to cut some deals. Bruce, how about that? Because to DT's point, you know, when Republicans took back the Senate in 2014 in those final two years of the Biden administration, it was McConnell and and Biden that that cut those deals, government funding, debt limit. The conventional wisdom says this is the Biden administration, Republican Senate recipe for gridlock. Uh, But that history might suggest otherwise. Yeah, first, we're learning uh, don't rely on history. Real estate prices can go down and, uh, and other unexpected things can happen. And I would note to your framing, to DT's point, Senator McConnell and Senator Biden had served together almost a full term before AOC was born in 1989. Wow. I think what we need to remember is so many administrations come in and they have their giant aspirational goals. In this next Congress, assuming Republicans hold the Senate and Joe Biden is the president, both rational assumptions, the aspirational is going to have to give way to the practical. Throwing for touchdowns is going to have to give way to running for first downs. And the negotiating within your own party, whether it's the tax reform or ACA, and not really worrying about the other party, is going to have to give way to legislating, old-fashioned, the founders had it in mind, and uh, ironically, uh, given uh, how old all of them are and how much, how few of them feel like they're part of the future, a Pelosi, Biden, McConnell triumvirate may be the three most experienced and capable legislators in Washington. So uh, weird as it sounds, because they're all wrong for the future in lots and lots of ways, but they may be just the people we need in the present to actually make progress on the things that need to get done. E.T., Joe Biden may be the first newly elected Democratic president to come into office without the Senate since 1894. That's going to have enormous impact on his cabinet decisions, uh, on his staffing of the executive branch. What's What's the transition, what's the staffing up of the Biden administration going to look like, uh, assuming he gets certified here in the next few days? Um, So I think there's um, a lesson to be learned going back to the 2000 election, something that George W. Bush did uh, right. He started acting like the president on day one. And if we have an extended um, sort of recounts and that sort of thing, Joe Biden's going to go on with the business of preparing to run the country and let his lawyers work out the transition. So what does that mean? That means we are going to see the rollout of Uh, not only cabinet officials, which I think we'll see soon, uh, but also laying out his initial plans for the first 100 days, most of which will be centered around the coronavirus and uh, economic recovery. So Mitch McConnell does get a, uh, you know, he's he's got to uh, advise and consent on every one of these cabinet nominations that's going to go through. Once again, we're going to hear the name Merrick Garland quite a bit um, in 2021. as, as we face these challenges here. I actually think there's an opportunity for, for uh, President uh, Biden to, uh, to actually make a, take a stand here on some of these uh, nominations here. He'll put some forward, some of them will go through. I suspect some will get some uh, Republican support. I suspect the most popular Republican senators over the next few months are gonna be uh, Lisa Murkowski, 
Susan Collins and Mitt Romney, um, if you can get them to support right. a cabinet official, it goes through. But you know, but I think he will want to pick some fights and and show the the uh, show the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party that he is willing to stand up. And if some of them don't get approved, that's a risk that Senator McConnell is going to have to take with his caucus. Stacey Abrams is someone I look to, like she will have single-handedly done more than anybody else to uh, turn uh, Georgia blue. And that's a state that uh, Democrats had not won in a very long time. And, and she gets credit. She should be part of this next administration. Does she get a cabinet appointment? I think she should. Will the Senate approve her? We'll see. But if they don't, they do that at their own risk. So well, let me ask I think you, it's exciting. Dean, you're, you're the expert as a former Senate chief of staff. DT's right that there often will be votes among more moderate Republicans, but doesn't the leader control the floor? I think Merrick Garland had the votes. He just didn't get a vote. Yeah, he controls, even on the executive calendar, controls what votes uh, get scheduled. You know, it just strikes me that in some instances, a President Biden might be glad to be able to throw up his arms to the progressive side of the party and say, sorry, guys, I can't get it through Mitch McConnell's Senate. He might, he might actually benefit uh, from having that backstop. But I think he's got to try. I think that's the thing, Dean, is, is he can't just throw up his hands before he's tried. So that's why I do think you'll see uh, some people who are nominated who may not be confirmed or who may not even get votes on the, on the floor, which I think would be a shame. But he's got to put up that effort um, to show that he's willing to fight for progressive uh, administration officials, too. In, in just a, a little bit of time we've got remaining, Bruce, you started the year predicting black swans in 2020. It feels like we got a whole flock What's the big picture for 2021? Pandemic, China, trade, tech. Given what we know at this point on likely outcomes, what do you see for the new year? Well, let's start by saying I sure as hell am not going to predict black swans anymore because talking <laughs> about self-fulfilling, <laughs> good God. You know, so DT makes fun of me for being such a starry-eyed, hopeful optimist. I think 2021 is a time for healing. I think that's true with respect to the global pandemic and, and uh, our health. I think that's true with respect to an economy that's been uh, pretty hard hit and still is, is hard hit by an ongoing recession. And, uh, and most of all, I think for our national politics, which really have gone to an extreme level of, uh, of intense hatred, it's a time for healing. The country is designed to work around the Constitution that requires cooperation, that requires uh, bipartisan compromise. And while it works great on social media and wonderful for cable ratings, if you just suggest the other side is the enemy and you want to get nothing done, what we've seen and really had revealed this year is how fragile we are as a nation. Our healthcare system doesn't cover enough people. Our safety nets don't uh, prevent the K-shaped recovery that we're seeing and the types of challenges that we're going to need to address to succeed as a nation, whether it's infrastructure or, uh, or technology leadership are gonna demand people work together. That's my takeaway of the mandate of what people voted for. Uh, and, uh, and I'm hopeful that we are putting in place folks who can make incremental progress towards repairing all these rifts. Well, an enormous amount to sort out before the healing begins. We'll see how it all plays out. We'll come back to break it all down. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for being on 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. Thank you.